0: Welcome to the Unteachables podcast. I'm your host, Claire, and I am absolutely no stranger to the challenges and let's face it, sometimes carnage of being a teacher. And if you found yourself, here listening with me, I'd say that you might know a bit about that as well, because being a teacher is freaking hard. And this podcast is dedicated to making you feel a hell of a lot less alone whilst giving you the knowledge, support and strategies that you need to not just survive the chaos of being a teacher, but truly really thrive. Think about it as getting a weekly dose of relatable, actionable, and most importantly, enjoyable professional learning straight into your ears. So hit the subscribe button, download me for your commute, and let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another season of the Unteachables podcast boy is it nice to be back. It feels like it's been so long and the reason being I've uh, just finished my book. I had to really focus in on that for a period of time while that was kind of like getting wrapped up. Um, I have gone back to work after maternity leave so I've just had everything going on at once so I just had to put a bit of a pause on the podcast but it's back and I'm really excited and if you're tuning in for the first time I just wanted to quickly reintroduce myself. I'm Claire, I'm a secondary teacher, I'm a senior leader and I've turned, well now, as well as. I do it all kind of at the same time, but I'm a podcaster. I'm a content creator, a teacher educator. I run training programs. I am now an author, which I absolutely can't believe I'm saying. I'm an an educational consultant and just a bunch of other little bits and bobs that I've kind of come across doing in the time that I've been running the Unteachables Academy. And if you ask me why I do this work, it's just because I have an unwavering belief that if we want to champion our students, all of them, not just those who display really challenging behaviors, we must first champion teachers. You're the bread and butter of what we do here in the classroom. And you just deserve access to relevant and actionable support because classroom management is a really lonely thing sometimes. It can be so disempowering. It can be obviously really challenging and it shouldn't be that way. You should have access to as much support as possible. So on today's episode, I feel like I'm coming back with a bang because I had the pleasure of talking to Marie Gentles. You might know her best as the expert in the two BBC documentaries, Don't Exclude Me and the most recent one, Helping Our Teens. So she's a little bit of a celebrity in the education space. And now as the author of the book, Gentles, Guidance, How to Understand, Inspire, and Empower Your Kids. That was just recently published in June this year, so it's incredibly relevant. Um, She also developed Gentle Guidance, where she delivers her own digital behavior training program for schools and services and families. To say this woman is moving mountains in this space is an absolute understatement, but what you might not know about Marie is the absolute wealth of knowledge and experience that precedes all of that. She's a living, breathing representation of the kind of leading from the front support that teachers do need in deserve, especially when it comes to classroom management, something that's so lacking. She has over 20 years of experience in education, and after working in the mainstream sector here in London for 10 years, something that's challenging in itself, she began working in a pupil referral unit and social, emotional, and mental health provisions, uh, much like myself, where she became the deputy and then head teacher of the provision, and the data speaks for itself with her approach. In 2010, Marie was appointed the strategic lead for a London Borough's Nurture Group project and set up a Nurture Group model to serve the entire borough, the first of its kind nationally, and it had so much success in modifying people's behaviour and it significantly reduced the rate of permanent exclusions. There was a 95 to 100% success rate year upon year. And because of this work and all of her contributions, she was awarded an OBE for her services to education in 2020. And for those who don't know, because you're not UK based it is an order of the british empire which acknowledges significant contributions of service so that's a pretty big deal of you know somebody that's been working in the education space I don't usually do really long introductions like this, but I really wanted to give some context as to why when this incredible woman talks about what we need to be doing in the classroom to best support our young people and ourselves, I think we all need to be listening and what a frigging privilege it was to be able to talk about some really important things with Marie. So let's just crack into the episode. Hello, everybody. I am Claire. I'm the host of the Unteachables podcast. And as you already know from the introduction, I'm here with the incredible Marie Gentles. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being here. It is such a treat being able to have you on the podcast and not just because you are like such an expert in what you do, um, but because I think we just said like we're so aligned in our values about education and I think you're a bit of a superstar in the space. I I always find it really nerdy when people come onto my podcast and I'm like, stuff any kind of um, movie stars, like people like you who are doing this work, you know, you're my kind of like little fangirl moment. So it's just really nice to be able to talk to you. If there are people listening who have never heard of you, would you be able to give them a quick rundown of who you are and what your work is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I qualified as a teacher many years ago. I now work as a behavioural expert Um, an educational consultant. Um, And within that role, I support young people, families, schools and organizations with children and young people who are displaying emotional and behavioural needs or issues for one reason or another, which I'm sure we'll get into (laughs) as we discuss throughout the rest of the morning
0: brilliant and I think that was a very modest introduction of yourself if you haven't and we'll talk about it at the end anyway all the things that you've done but one of the ways that I first came into contact with your work was through your documentary like not many people can say I've got a BBC documentary and like one of the things that I love about your work right other than the fact that you know obviously we're really aligned with our approaches is your values in leadership as well and how you work with the schools themselves like in the way that you work with them on the documentary and the obvious you do more work than you. we just see on that. Um, but one of the things you said in the documentary was, you know, we, I work alongside schools because it's not about shaming any teacher. We're just doing the best that we can. And that is something that I'm so passionate about because we don't get taught this stuff and it's so complex. It's so complicated and teachers really are like you don't get into the profession because you hate kids. And I know that there are some teachers who are a bit jaded, but you don't get into the profession to do that. Um, But I just love your approach to actually working with educators as well. Yeah. I mean, I
1: think this is such an important point. And this is where, again, you and I are so aligned, because I know you talk about this a lot. But I spent four years at university doing my teaching degree, and I honestly cannot remember anything I did around behavior support i can't remember it i mean Mm -hmm. that's a lot within four years so you know whilst i think we all recognize that there needs to be changes there always will there's always going to be something that needs to be developed and changed etc um i also think that we have to look at why why do we have a number of teachers or senior leaders or schools etc who maybe don't fully understand how to support these young people or, you know, who are, who are getting so overwhelmed or so burnt out. And we need to look go right back to the beginning and think about, well, does this start from teacher training? Uh, what's missing? And how can we support, support the teachers within the school or the staff within the school, as well as the parents and carers and obviously the young people as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny you said that, because in my book, I start one. Oh no, I start the whole book. My introduction for the whole book is about I spent five years at university. I did two degrees and I talk about the twenty minutes that I can remember ever being taught about classroom management. And that 20 minutes was a bit of a joke. It was like um the like the tutor sitting up the front going, right, if you've got kids that don't know what they're doing or they're not on board with what you're doing, you just need to do this. And he went around and he like just pointed, like he stood over them and he's like, you just give them the look and then you point, 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 point. And he like bashed his finger against people's books as he was walking around. And that is all I remember about classroom management. I talk about that in the introduction to the book because it's so important for us to remember that we're just not prepared for all of the challenges that we end up facing. And it is like one of the biggest challenges of the profession.
1: Yeah, totally. And do you know what else I think? I think for people like myself, you know, often people are like, wow, Marie, look what you've done. And I know a lot of it. it is, I have done a lot, but I know a lot of it is because I've done the documentaries and, you know, written a book and some other things that I've done. But I also think it's so important to say I have been there. I was yeah. that newly qualified teacher. I was that middle leader. I was also a, a senior leader. You know, I've actually I've been there in the position and it didn't I, I didn't, you know, come into the profession with all this knowledge and expertise. I had to build it up over time. And I just think it's just important to say that because I think, we we totally understand what it's like to do the job and the the challenges of the job but also on the bright side how to manage those challenges so actually you can feel like you really enjoy doing what you're doing it is possible <laughs> it absolutely is
0: yeah going back to that idea of enjoyment i think especially with low level behaviors i think teachers are losing that enjoyment because they're so frustrated and I still find it challenging. I think that's important to say it is a challenging job. You know, I'm a senior leader. I still teach English. I still find days really, really challenging because at the end of the day, no one is all over it, no matter how experienced you are. I could spend all day having a coffee talking to you about all things classroom management, but I thought it would be really interesting for us to kind of talk about some of the patterns of thinking teachers can slip into when it comes to working with challenging behaviours. And the reason I wanted to do this is because these are the kind of things that perpetuate the cycle of behavior, and it's not just about supporting the students and about breaking that cycle for the for the young people that we work with, but it's for the teacher as well. As you said, it's about making sure that we're able to do the job that we we want to do. It we got into the profession, we want to do this. We didn't get into it for the pay. We certainly didn't do that. Um, and then we get into the profession, and it's just really tough. So these are the kind of things that can empower everyone. I think if we discuss them and kind of debunk them a little bit, does that sound all right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the things that I hear a lot, I think you would as well in our work, we do, we work with teachers, we hear a lot of these things, but a lot of the things we hear, are they don't want to be here. They're lazy. They don't care about their learning. What do you think about that particular kind of assumption that we can make about our young people?
1: I think, first of all, I have a phrase, we have lots of phrases, but one of them is no blame, no shame. So it's about not blaming or shaming ourselves or anyone else. Like you said at the beginning, we're all just doing the best we can from where we are. So the first thing I want to say is that I totally understand where those phrases come from. And that's why I keep saying no blame, no shame, because I get when you've got a whole class and you have these young people and you've shown up thinking to yourself, but I want to be here, I want to help you and look at what you're presenting back to me, I totally understand where that mindset comes from. But another phrase I have is that behaviour support is a mindset first, and it's not a list of strategies. So we can, you and I, Claire, we can, you know, give many, many support strategies for adults supporting young people, which we know are effective, if done consistently, and so on and so forth. However, if we don't have the mindset behind the implementation of those strategies, it will fall flat. And so the first thing I think I think is really, really important is perception. So if we are perceiving a young person as really lazy, which is totally understandable, you know, I'm sure we've all been there to, in some way, shape or form. But if we're perceiving them as, as as really lazy, then what will happen is our thoughts around them will be, you know, that's such a lazy child. I've worked so hard to plan this lesson and now they're disrupting my lesson or not doing anything. And then I I've got, I talk about thought, feeling, action. And then our feelings, I know you're familiar, Claire. Our feelings will be around, you know, kind of overwhelm, frustration, etc. So our action may then be to say to that young person, um, if you don't want to be here, then you know, you 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 shouldn't be here then, or you know, we'll take your head off the table, you know, I worked really hard at whatever it may be. Whereas if we change our perception, which is changing how we perceive the behavior, instead we look what's going on behind the behaviour, why? So that I always say just use the word why. Um, you know, why there's always a reason for everything. Every single behavior for child or adult is a is a communication. Um, so, why are they showing up that way? You know, it could be as simple as environmental factors, tiredness, um, you know, not eating enough, but it also could be so many other things. It could be linked to a need, diagnosed, undiagnosed, the fact that they're just their age, the fact that they're just a young person, mm-hmm. need to understand about how the brain works. Um, you know, I just think to myself that it, it's normal and understandable to have these mindsets, but if we're going to, really support these young people long-term. We've got to change our perception of them first and understand why we think what we do and understand why they're behaving as they are. And that's the first step, I believe.
0: Yeah, so the students are acting lazy. They're, you know, they don't want to be, they don't care, all the rest of it, how they're presenting. We do that as well. And we expect compassion for those times, but we don't give that to our young people because of the context or whatever it might be. The amount of times I could have said to myself in the last week, oh, Claire you're just so freaking lazy. Am I? Or am I just burnt the hell out? Am I just exhausted, you know? And we don't see our students through that same lens. And I think it's really important to start seeing them through that lens. Like they're just human beings in this space with us and they're tired. They might not understand, you know, like providing them with the same compassion that we would expect for ourselves, I think is really important.
1: Oh, absolutely. And do you know what I love? This is why I'm so excited to speak to you today because professionals like ourselves are all saying the same thing we just have different ways of delivering it different words different examples but ultimately we're all saying the same thing you know that was a brilliant example you just talked about as an adult you know compassion and I've just talked about behavior as communication and looking at the why, we're both saying the exact same thing. And it's just, this is why it's so important to have these conversations, because everyone learns differently, not just the young people. And so different things can click for different people. And I just think it's so important. I I always talk about the reflection or the the similarities between all of us as humans, whether adult or, or child. And like you've just said, you know we still get if if you're a driver you might get frustrated on the road you know we do not walk around calm happy fully alert totally taking in what someone is saying to us 24/7 we do not do that as adults so we cannot expect that from the young people in that way but if it's a consistent issue we need to look at what's going on for that young person and how can i adequately support them
0: I saw saw a post, sorry. I saw a post from you this morning, which, which leads me into my next thing. But you posted about sensory issues this morning. And it, it, you know, again, it's all about seeing the why beneath it. You're talking about the fact that like sensory issues can often present or be seen as defiant, whatever it might be. And you said. This doesn't mean that all students, all children who have oppositional behaviors have sensory issues, but it's about becoming curious and keeping that in our minds and breaking those patterns of thinking. And it's so true because often I post about things and I say, we need to flip our thinking on this, that, and the other. And people will come back and say, oh, but sometimes it is that. Yes, sometimes it is that, but it's about the curiosity. It's about the why. It's about being able to dig deeper and everything you're saying is about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes it can feel quite overwhelming because it can feel like there isn't one blanket rule for all. And often people can think, people who support young people can think, how am I supposed to personalise this for every single young person um, when I've got all of these things to do and they've got all these differing needs? And what I say is that you're absolutely right. There is no, you know, one way for every single young person. However, universally, if you think about... um, just what we need as humans, regardless of need, regardless of age, we all need and we all deserve to feel emotionally safe. Um, And we all need and deserve to feel an element of control within our lives as well. Um, And if we have those feelings of emotional safety and connection in one way, shape or form, and that kind of safe control, every single human needs that. So when we kind of when we strip things apart and then we start to look at the why, if we can have a baseline where what we're providing for the young people covers emotional safety, it covers covers emotional connection, um, and it covers safe control, every single young person needs that. And if we can create... Uh, environments within schools or home settings that has that baseline then on top of that you can personalize things for individual students and it takes a while you know I'm saying this all casually now after years and years and years, and years of putting this into practice so now it's just like second nature to me but there was a point where I had to really every single time think about am I doing this and I need to remember this but after a while it becomes part of Who you are and just what you Mm -hmm. do, rather than something additional you have to remember. But that takes time and practice, which is why these conversations are important because no one's alone. You know, we have been there. That's really important to say.
0: Yeah, what's it called? So you go from being unconsciously unskilled and then you go through the process, and eventually you become unconsciously skilled and you've hardwired all of those things. So now when I'm planning a lesson, I'm embedding things that foster that felt safety. I'm I'm, I'm embedding all of the routines. I do a starter activity in the same way. I do all of the same things every lesson to create a net under every single student in that room. So when they walk into the room, they know that they'll be able to succeed in something. They'll know that things are really clear. They'll know that things are really predictable and they'll know that they can predict what I'm going to be like. But all of that, as you said, it's just... I see it as like a net that you have to weave together and it takes a long time to weave that net and things still slip through. But you needed to create that as much as possible. And that's where the low level behavior kind of things come in because they're not something really tangible all the time either, is it? It's really hard to kind of nail down what to do with low level behaviors, but that is where that comes in. That net should catch all of those things. And then you can spend the time on the really specific behaviors that you need to spend time on. The kids like uh, Julia, was it? In, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, be- it was beautiful watching your work with her and something that you said to her was nobody should feel like anything's wrong with them. I think that the, the biggest feedback I
1: got was from that one liner in the documentary, which obviously I was just doing organically, but it touched so many people when I had said to her, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. And I think that is one of the reasons, well, the main reason why I wanted to do the documentary just because you have this access to this platform that can reach millions. And if it means you can make someone stop and think, or they might think differently, even if it's just for a moment, that's just invaluable in terms of how we can then go on and support these young people. And I just want to say one more thing from what you said, because I think it's so important. When you talked about the net, which I just think is just brilliant, that's exactly it. And we've all got different ways of creating that net for these young people. Um, And I talk about... Uh, you know, the, and I know you do too, Claire. You talk about you know the routines, boundaries, expectations, language, attachment, all of those things, because it provides internally emotional, emotionally for the young people emotional security, safety, and um, consistency. That's why we do those things. But I just wanted to also mention that it's 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 we have to get to the point where it's it's expected that the young people are going to do things even when you've got the net every single day and you're being consistent. Our brains are still developing, as you you mentioned, the age of 25 not too long ago, up until the age of 25. These young people, they're, they're, the part of their brain that kicks in is not the rational part. It's not even fully developed. It's the last part of the brain to develop from kind of 25. And so for them, their their kind of impulsiveness part of the brain, you know, that part is going to kick in because that's, that's their brain is literally still developing. So we have to try and get to a point where we've got our net, we've got our structures, and we're feeling okay about the job that we're doing. Some days are more stressful, etc. But there's also a perception around, we are never going to get to a point of, of perfection, it doesn't exist. So I always say, progression, not perfection, look for progression, not perfection, and incremental tiny step by step progress. And it keeps everybody going and feeling a bit better about the day-to-day supporting these brilliant young people who can be quite challenging sometimes.
0: Yeah, and we don't control their behaviours and we can put everything in place, but we don't have that ultimate control. Most people struggle to control their own behaviour sometimes, let alone controlling everybody else's behaviour around them and 30 in a room. Um, so we'll never get to that point. Like we'll never get to that place. And that brings me on to the next one, that they're choosing to misbehave.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, this is a big one. <laughs> So I think that this is so, 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 so common and is totally understandable. And I think that what's important is I think we can get lost in um, you know, people, we could have a debate. Someone could say no, which is which is I've spoken to a head teacher a while back and she was absolutely adamant, and she was saying, no, these young people, you know, that she was a secondary school um head teacher and she was saying, these young people, they are choosing particular behaviours, and this is how it is. And I've been in this profession for X amount of years and I had a slightly different perspective and we could have argued back and forth. But in the end, what I said to her was, it doesn't make sense arguing back and forth. What makes sense is we look at the common ground and we look at what we want for these young people. So even if we feel that they're choosing it, so that's not my perspective. So my perspective is, yes, sometimes they can push push the, push the boundaries and et cetera. But I also believe this is part of them growing up. And when I think back, I did the same and so on and so forth um however we also need to just look at why whether we believe they are or they aren't why why are they doing it so you might have a really simple answer which is well you know they're just teenagers or they're just toddlers or whatever age that young person is that you're supporting um or it could be well actually they have this underlying need diagnosed or undiagnosed and I understand what that need looks like on paper but actually what does that look like in real life how does that actually present every single day and when you can get that understanding Um, everything changes. Like I said, perception, everything changes. When you can look at, let's take the documentary, because you mentioned Lear, for example, it was really hard for some of those staff members to look at her and see a young girl, a really nice young girl who wants to do her best um, and is trying her best. And I totally understood that some of that stuff was on camera. Some of it was off camera, the conversations that I had with them. And it was really hard for them to see that because she was very verbally aggressive um, you know, her, her presence was really big and quite intimidating sometimes. Totally get it. However, you can also perceive her as, OK, I understand she's got ADHD and a number of other diagnoses. And when we understand what that looks like um, and when we really understand what that means, what that what that means in terms of her, her brain structure, what that means in terms of her impulsiveness, what that means in terms of her how her brain um, processes things when we can perceive it in that way everything about that changes it doesn't make the behavior acceptable it doesn't mean we condone it but it means that the way that we support her changes because then we see it as a need and then we can begin to meet the need which helps to modify those behaviors over time you can't get rid of the ADHD and we wouldn't ADHD and we wouldn't want to But what we can do is support those behaviours to not reoccur in the same way as they were occurring before.
0: Yeah, I remember you saying to her, um, you know, when we get angry, like what happens in our body when we get angry? And it just makes me think of like the whole idea that kids – behave well when they have the skills to, and it is about skill, not will. And with her, it was so glaringly obvious that it was about that because she really, she didn't want another placement to fall through. She didn't want to have to leave another like school. She wanted to build those connections with people. She just didn't know how to. And I think there was a lot of her having... A lot of will to do that, but she was really struggling with the skill she had, which is incredibly sad. And she was choosing to meet her needs in the best ways that she knew how in that moment. She wasn't choosing to be naughty, but she was choosing. Of course, we, we're all making choices. And I'm a big fan of choice, choice theory. Um, but our choices are driven by the way that we can best meet our needs in that in any given time. And if we don't have the alternative for that. It comes out, of course, it's going to come out in in aggressive behaviour or anger or all the rest of it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I just want to quickly mention one other person in the the documentary as well because I think it's important. Oliver, he was in year seven at the time, he's in year eight now, um, diagnosis of autism. And um, we saw on the documentary when he was going to be suspended again for a period of time after an incident. with. We didn't see the incident um, on the documentary, but we, we saw the aftermath. And it was so interesting because for him, he had pushed a couple of teachers out of the doorway. Um, But when I did training and things for the school as well throughout, and it was so interesting to be able to teach around the fact that that behaviour, we're not condoning that, we're not condoning pushing someone. And that work was done with him. He's doing brilliantly now which is so amazing Amazing. Um, but the reason why he's doing brilliantly is because there is a newfound understanding of his need so when he was in this room where the adults believed that you know if, if we don't have him in this room it could be dangerous and all the rest of it um now they understand that actually in that moment what was going on for him is something had changed in that morning he didn't know what was coming next his emotional certainty was gone usually i know what's coming next and that makes me feel emotionally safe and contained that had gone so now i'm feeling vulnerable and anxious and all over the rest which is leading to these undesirable behaviors so instead of just looking at the behavior and thinking oh my gosh how do we stop or fix that now the adults are looking at his need and understanding, oh, he has a need. When something changes, sometimes we can't pre-warn him, but if we let him know as soon as possible, because that reduces his anxiety and stress when I know what's coming next, because that is part of how his brain works. When I can do that, then I feel better. So then my actions look different. So this goes back to what I was talking about with thought, feeling, action. We've got we've got to get to the need. What's the what's the reason behind? these behaviours and meet that need. It's, It's just transformative, but it does take time, of course.
0: Do you know what's even more transformative in that whole scenario? The fact that he then knows that the teachers that he'll come into contact with will care to look for the why that they will be thinking, okay, how is he going today? Has he had an okay morning? Is there something changing? The fact that he's got people that are looking out for him and his needs. So he knows that he's, he's kind of held in that way. That's transformative. Even if they mess it up one day and they change something, they forget to tell him they've got that boy held, you know? So I think that even just the act of us trying our very, very best with these young people, we're going to have days where we're gonna mess it up. Um, like I still remember it's a completely different situation, but I remember having a student in my class when I was um first teaching and she had vision impairment and I forgot to make arrangements for her that day and I felt so bad, but we're not perfect and we have so many things going on. I apologized, we moved on. Um but the fact that the teachers at that school are trying to hold him and he knows that and I think that's a beautiful thing in itself. Yeah.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: Love that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So these students obviously disrupting the class, they're disrupting the learning. And a lot of what I've gotten before is that they just shouldn't be in the class because it's not fair on the rest of the students who want to be there. They want to learn. And again, I love that every single time you talk about one of these assumptions that we make, you say it's understandable because it is understandable we're doing the best that we can under incredible pressures and what we're measured against at the end of the year as teachers isn't um you know how much felt safety we've had in our room that what we're measured against is the numbers on the paper so um obviously we're not judging any teacher for this but what would you say to this particular idea that students shouldn't be in the room because they're disrupting the learning for others yeah first
1: of all I'm going to say it again completely understand I have totally been there uh, when I was working in the mainstream uh, sector, you know, when you've got that, those one or two young people and they're disrupting everything. But it's again, it's about looking about the why for ourselves as well. Why do we think or feel that way? Well, it's often because actually we may feel de-skilled. I have felt de-skilled when I first started teaching for many years. And I was in certain situations where actually a, a particular behaviour was presented uh, within the classroom and I everything I was throwing at it all these strategies etc didn't seem to be working so it made me feel de-skilled so of course you know of course my my thinking or I my, I may say well maybe they need to be somewhere else then um, you know that's that's very very understandable so we can often feel de-skilled not know what to do or feel like we do know what to do but what we're doing isn't working there's so many reasons for this this way of thinking However, what I do say is that um, what I think is so important is that if we don't, whilst these young people are young, if if we're not supporting them and they go elsewhere, then what? Like, you know, if they then say, well, we can't support them either, and then we go, then what? And then we have to, you know, think about the fact that, These are the young people who then go into society and so on and so forth. And it all backs up, you know, it all has an impact on us collectively in some way, shape or form. So whilst I completely understand that thinking, I think that because of my um, experiences as well and obviously what I do now, because I know and this is a really bold statement, but I'm going to say it because I feel so confident in regards to what works for young people. And because I have such a high success rate, and again, I'm being really bold here because I've got the statistics, but also the the experience in terms of young people with various needs right across an entire spectrum. And I've seen the results. That's why I'm so confident in what I'm saying. But it's also why I say no blame, no shame, totally understand that you feel that way, because it's not an overnight thing. Um, and one of the things I was slightly concerned about when doing the documentaries is that I didn't want it to look like everything happened really quickly. You know, I was in those schools filming for around just under an academic year. So it took quite a, And even now, you know, I'm not in the schools anymore, but they're still continuing with the work um, when, when I whilst I'm not present there because it's ongoing. So, you know, we do have to be realistic, but in also it is doable. It really, 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 really is. I cannot stress this enough. When you when we really understand the whys we can perceive the behavior as a communication and then we can begin to meet those needs it happens over time um but for some young people I think this is important as well my mum used to be a foster care and we used to see this a lot for some young people you can give them all of the the resources and everything they need emotionally and practically but and we just have to remember it's always going in for them I use a flower analogy often like it's some like we're, we're watering the soil and sometimes we may not see whilst they're in our class, for example, that year, let's just say, we may not see that flower bloom that year, but we 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 mustn't forget that it's going into the soil. Something's happening beneath the soil, and we may see it the next year or the following year and so on and so forth. Nothing is ever wasted in that sense.
0: Thank you so much for addressing that. and I say it all the time. You don't see it happening at the moment, but it is working. I think that we want things to be immediate. I've gone in that class. I've tried to do X, Y, and Z. This student's still telling me to f off and walking out. What do I? You know, they, they're not coming on board with what I want to do. They're still ripping up their page. I had a student that I worked with. It took him two whole years because I work at a um a school for social emotional mental health needs, very complex needs for um teenage teenage boy like all boys. It took him two years to come into an English lesson and sit down and pick up a pen and put pen to paper. Prior to that, he was picking up chairs, throwing them across the room, walking in saying, F you, I hate you. Your lessons are crap, all the rest of it. And then he'd leg it again. And it took so bloody long because what I represented for him was English, was, you know, abject failure. That's what I represented to him. And I represented every single teacher who'd made him feel that way, every subject that made it. So I was all of those things to this young young boy. It takes a long friggin' time and we only get a year. I got, luckily, I got more time with these students, but it takes a very long time and we often forget that when we're facing yeah. it. And it's all about the neuroplasticity, isn't it? Like every single point of connection is forming these new little, you know, um Like tentacles up to (laughs) little tentacles. And I talk about it as like a side road, like you're not going down the highway, because the highway is the is the way that you've got all of these challenges you've always had. You're kind of creating a little diversion down the side road, and that takes a long time.
1: But I think this is so crucial what you're saying, because I think some people listening may be thinking, but I'm in the mainstream and I don't have two years in that way to work with a child in that way if they're throwing chairs and it's dangerous. So I think I just want to say two quick important points. I think the first one I want to say is that there are some young people who do need um, yes. A period of time within a pupil feral unit, social, emotional, mental health provision, or depending on their needs, you know, they may need to be educated elsewhere. I mean, I was head of a pupil feral unit and social, emotional, mental health provision, and those young people needed that provision. So I just want to say that because there are those young people who need that when, you know, we're not saying that there aren't. Um, But what I also want to say is that with with the example you gave, which was just a brilliant example, there would have been, because I think for some people as well, I think what can happen is the thought of, oh my gosh, a couple of years where a child is throwing things around, whatever, like how are we supposed to manage that? Or what about all of the other kids, like you were saying earlier? And I think what's important is that we've got to look within that period of time for the incremental progress. So I always talk about if we're at a starting point and we've got an ideal of where we want to be it's not going to be a big leap there's lots and lots and lots of little steps in between and and we must celebrate and acknowledge those steps so it could be if you've got a young person who's constantly walking out of which is quite common for the boys in english lessons walking out of english <laughs> lessons, for example um and they're constantly walking out and then we, we're putting our, our net our safety net in place and we're doing all of these things etc and then what happens over time is that they stop walking out of that lesson, but they're still disruptive within the classroom. That's progress. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it can be, it can be like a bit like, what? But actually the fact that they're no longer leaving the room, that's progress. And we've got to acknowledge that. And we might still be like, oh my gosh, they're causing havoc in the room. This is so stressful. That's fine. We can do all of that. No problem. They're there for a reason absolutely but we've got to acknowledge those increments of progress and then the next thing may be they stop being disruptive in the within the lesson and they're sat at their desk but they're doing not one bit of work that's another bit of progress and then so on and so forth mm-hmm. and then we, we but we it's so easy to miss these things when we're so overwhelmed and stressed and all of the rest of it which I'll which before we end this I'll talk a bit about that if that's okay with you about you know, what we can do, because it's all good and well as talking about this. But if you're feeling overwhelmed, then you're feeling
0: yes. overwhelmed. So I just wanted to make those couple of points quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, go on, then talk about it now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. So, uh, I mentioned
1: earlier that behavior support is a mindset first and not a list of strategies. So, you know, we can, you know, we can sit here and people can be listening and saying, yeah, this makes total sense what Marie and Claire are talking about. But you know, when I walk into the classroom, this is how I feel, and I just can't put it into place. So, what's so what's important when I talk about change perception? In order for us to change our perception or our beliefs or our mindsets or look at the wise, we cannot be in what I call emotionally full. If we're emotionally full to the brim, we are going to feel overwhelmed and anxious and stressed and fed up. And um, I I use a glass analogy in my training in my book and If, if, say, for example, we're 90% emotionally full from stress, tiredness, we've got lives outside of work, et cetera, um, and then we come into the classroom, we've only got 10% capacity to think, reason, react and respond. When that young person who we know has got ADHD and we know it's not personal and we know we're supposed to put our safety net in and blah, 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 blah. We've only got 10% capacity to think, reason, react and respond. So when something happens, we've only got that to respond with. And so we respond in certain ways that leave us feeling even more burnt out, etc. So we've got to reduce the fullness. So if we can reduce the fullness, say for example, not all the way to zero, that's not realistic, life happens. But if we can reduce that fullness, let's just say to 60%. Now we've got 40% capacity to think, reason, react and respond. And the way we can do this, all scientifically based, you can do it really, really basically here is just by thinking about what is emotionally containing for us and implementing that on a daily basis. So for example, um, it might be going for a walk, talking to a friend, uh, reading um, five minutes in the morning, having a coffee or a cup of tea by yourself, whatever it is. And I hear lots of people when I first talk about this, I just don't have the time. And I always say the same way you have the time to brush your teeth for X amount of minutes in the morning, you can create a few extra minutes for something for yourself. And then eventually, because you'll see how it works and what it does to the brain, et cetera, you will want to increase that and you will find a way. And you will start to see, let's just say your your, your own containment is a coffee in the morning by yourself with no one else around. And that's your emotional containment that creates this space, if you like, in your brain. Um And it helps to to kind of lower your emotional fullness. If, for example, one day you don't do that, you will feel the difference. When you go in and you face that, you, you, you can feel the difference when you don't do your containment. It sounds really simple, but it's so impactful. And it's often the one thing that people go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But then they forget to do it or they start to do it and then it drops off. It's usually the one thing that goes first. And then we find ourselves battling when we're so emotionally full to try and put everything in place. But that the your your self-containment has got to come first. Then when you're feeling less emotionally full, you can perceive things differently. Um, you can begin to remember things differently, and then you can begin to support differently. I honestly I cannot stress this enough. You come first. I, I can't stress this enough. I really can't.
0: I love that idea of that containment. I always talk about like regulation, how crucial that is for us to be regulated as teachers, but I've yeah. never, I've never um, kind of communicated in that way before. I'm always like, we like, cause what works for me is at the, at the start of a lesson, taking a deep breath and telling myself whatever happens, I can only really control what I can control. I can own like ev- still now, every single lesson, cause I know it's always going to be challenging. I know that I'm going to come across things that might be triggering for me, especially now as a mum, I feel like I've got such little, yeah. of that, that I, I really feel the impact of it. And, and hearing you talk, I'm like, no wonder I'm finding it harder to regulate at school. No wonder I'm really, really having to consciously, I didn't have to consciously do it as much before I had Ava, but now I've really got to consciously bring myself down, regulate at the start of a lesson. And it makes sense because I'm not having that time. Um, a shower is my time now, but yeah, yeah, I always say to, um to everybody, just Take that deep breath and tell yourself, you know, a mantra or whatever it might be. But it just makes total sense for people just to choose something that works for them.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I cannot stress this enough, and just to just to kind of relate you gave an example of your daughter because sometimes it can be so easy to listen but I really want people to also understand that we've been there or where we are there so you know my mum's got dementia she's not living with us anymore but last year we had to move her into a home because it was so hard to manage but for five years she lived with us and honestly I was literally not sleeping working full-time raising our two children um, doing all of these things and then having to come home and then walk into the house with my mum who's got dementia and with all these different behaviours and things that come with it. And it's a degenerative, obviously, disease, so it's get, it gets worse. Um, and so the reason I'm sharing this is because I employ the, everything I talk about, I do for myself. I never just talk about things and I haven't done it or I don't do it. Like This is literally my way of life. So when people are like, how did you do that and film a, a BBC documentary and do your consultancy work and write a book? I say self containment is <laughs> my best example. And I'm not kidding you. That is how I did it. I'm not kidding. And it wasn't easy all the time, but I absolutely felt it if I didn't do it. So now it's just become a way of life. Like I do my self containment every single day. And that's why people often say to me, like, how, how are you kind of quite buoyant most of the time? And I say, I'm not happy all the time, but, um, but I, I, have integrated this into my way of life. And it's, it's literally changed my entire life, not just working life, everything, personal life, everything.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. And it it is so important for everybody to know that we are there and not just going into classrooms as someone that has all these skills and it's easy and, you know, we're breezing through it. We've got crap going on in our own lives as well. And it is freaking hard. And it's so funny you said all those things, like you've got so many things going on. And I was exactly the same back at work full time as a senior leader, having to like go into my own classes, manage everybody else's, finish the book, come home, no sleep with Ava. I was getting rolling sickness because of nursery. And it makes sense now that you say it, I'm like, how was I doing that? And it's because every single morning without fail, I'm like, I know that if I get through this night, I've got a hot coffee waiting for me. Like it just sounds so silly. Um, and when I went into work, I'm like, I'm going to have an almond croissant. Like I'm going to sit here for five minutes and I'm going to eat that. And I'm not going to talk to anybody. Um, it's how you cope. It's how you get through. It's how you manage. But we can't do anything with our young people without feeling like we're able to do that and, and regulated to do that and have the capacity to do it because they take a, it takes a lot of us. It does. Yeah, 100%. It really does.
1: The the final thing I just want to say, really, just to kind of summarize everything, if you like, is that, and I know I've said this already, but I cannot stress this enough. Like, I, I think that we've got to really think about how we perceive things, because when we perceive things in particular ways, we put unnecessary pressure on ourselves So if, for example, we have a perception that for me as a good teacher or as a good mum, it means that the children in my care are well behaved most of the time, for example, let's just use that as a kind of blanket example. If we have that perception, we are setting ourselves up for failure. We're going to feel like we're inadequate or or, or things aren't working. Whereas if we can change our thinking, our perception, which is the first step in behaviour support and begin to think, I, I need to I understand how these young people's brains work. Their brains are still developing up until the age of 25. Um, if they do have additional needs, or even if they don't, if they're just really young, for example, we understand that you know, when my young child has a meltdown, that is part of them learning about the boundaries or or whatever that may be, or if they don't share yet, that's because for them and their young brains, their brains aren't developed to be, to think outside of themselves yet. I mean, if we can start thinking about that in that way, it changes everything. We no longer think, oh my gosh, my child's not sharing, they're going to be selfish. We're now like, oh yeah, okay, that's just part of child development. And it doesn't make it easier when they have a meltdown or when you have an older child, if you're a teacher, who's, you know, who's displaying a particular behavior in the classroom but what it does is it just takes a little bit of pressure off the shoulders when you're able to perceive and say this is to be expected Um, and and now I know you know through whether it's training reading books or doing training or whatever now I have more information on what to do to support these young people I know that if I continue to do this something's always happening beneath the soil like the flower analogy from earlier. So always happening beneath the soil and it is, it will significantly reduce the risk of these behaviours reoccurring in the same way over time. Again, it just helps us to feel a little bit better overall. But we've got to, I just feel so strongly about the fact that we've got to change our perceptions from trying to aim for this kind of perfection, whether it's as a parent or a school staff member or anyone else. We've got to change that, that perception because we're just constantly going to be disappointed and constantly chasing or or listening to someone else or trying a new strategy. And actually, it's not necessary in that sense. There is is a base. So I talk about it in one way, you'll talk about it in a different way, but we're talking about the same thing. So find maybe a couple of people who inspire you, who you like to listen to or whatever, and really go over their books or if you've got something to watch or, or a course or whatever, and start to really learn about it in that way. Don't overwhelm yourself and learn about it in that way. And then begin to apply it and until it becomes part of your everyday life. Otherwise, you're constantly looking for this miracle cure um, for these young people that doesn't exist. And you spend, you can expect, you can spend years doing that and you feel totally burnt out at the end. So that's just what I want to kind of say, the last thing I want to say, really, because you know, that's how I've come to this point today in terms of my thinking, not just work-wise, but personally. Um, but also it's just helped me get such a good work life balance to the point where I can boldly, honestly and confidently say I love my job, even all the hard parts about it. Um, I absolutely love it, but I can also confidently say, and I also know what works for these young people, but it's taken a while to get there.
0: <laughs> no, I love yeah. that so I love it so much. And one of the big pushbacks I get, because we're we're both working with kind of like a brain-based, restorative, trauma-informed approach, whatever you want to call it, it's the same thing. We talk about it in different ways. Um when we work in this way, the pushback you get sometimes is, well, it doesn't work. Like students they need to know, they need to learn the lesson they need to, whatever. What I always say is, well, what's the alternative, you know, like, what do you want to get out of this? And that's not going to get what you want. Like the alternative to having a restorative discussion is what the alternative to building a relationship is what not building a relationship. Like, I think the second we start to realize that the alternative to a restorative approach is something that is just not going to work, the more on board everybody's going to be with it because we want sustainable change for these young people and this is the way that you need to get it. Like we, that's, this is the way that we 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 do get that. Um, yeah. So I would just appreciate your work so much because it's not just advocating for students and young people for what they need to be able to thrive and learn and all the rest of it, but it's also advocating for all of the teachers, which is so crucial because that is who's doing the job and you know blamed not shame is something that I'm going to be constantly quoting you on in future because it really does have to underpin everything that we do
1: i think it's so important that we didn't really we kind of touched on but not fully when you when you talked about You know that kind of trauma approach and all the rest of it. I think it's so important to say that everything in life is balanced. So the way I now describe it, to try and hopefully bring together hearts and minds coming from all these different perspectives and walks of life, is that the. So I've created something which I call the containment puzzle, and the word containment is about emotional safety and security. And within that that puzzle, there's seven elements, and so I'll just name a few of them, which I mentioned earlier, but boundaries um language attachment routine expectations uh, the, and there's a couple more so but what I talk about is the fact that to help balance things out the boundaries the reason why we have boundaries for young people so when we're understanding um you know the behaviors communication all the rest of it it doesn't mean we don't have boundaries I've heard, mm-hmm. heard this so times and people get you know quite confused around it which is understandable but the it's about the balance of all of these elements so you should have boundaries because that's your external support and the reason you have the boundaries is because internally the boundaries provide emotional safety for the young person you should have expectations that's your external support but internally it provides emotional safety security for these young people so this is how i kind of kind of marked it out to to make it a bit clearer but the the boundaries and the expectations and the routines, etc. They will come alive and work when you have an equal balance, not one more than the other. But when you have an equal balance, also of the type of language that you're using with that young person, when you have an equal balance of that connection or attachment that you're forming or actively doing with that young person, if you can balance that out with the boundaries, etc. That's when you see things really come alive. It's not about being boundary heavy or um or just you know kind of language heavy in terms of oh you know yes you understand behaviors communication it's not it's not one or the other it's a balance of all of these and that's that's why it's so impactful and so effective because you're balancing it all out and it's what we all need um to be able to survive and live safely and feel safe and contained
0: yeah i almost think that with an approach that we're taking the boundaries the expectations the follow through, all of those things have to end the accountability. It all has to be stronger. And I think it's a stronger approach because you need to be really strategic with how you do that and you have to get the buy-in. And when you get the buy-in, that's when things start to really happen and the magic happens. Um, So it's definitely not an approach that is lacking in any of that stuff, you know, and I'm preaching to the choir with that one. Um, So Marie, where can people access more of your guidance, your work guidance? I just got a little pun in there. Um, Your work and support.
1: Thank you. So I have a website, which is www.gentlesguidance.com. And that's got all the information on there. So there is access to um, my digital course that I've just created. And that's for individuals, whether that's parents, carers or teachers or people in professions or schools or organisations as well. So available to groups. Um, There's also information in there about my how to purchase my book, which is called Gentle Guidance. All, all play on my surname, Regent. <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't already, um, you can watch uh the documentary or documentaries on BBC iPlayer. Um, and of course, you know, follow on Instagram should you choose to.
0: And all of those things, I'm obviously going to pop in the show notes so everyone can find it really, really easily. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Marie. I know you're a busy woman and you're doing such amazing things. And um, yeah, I'm just stoked that I got to meet you as well.
1: Thank you so much. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.